1: Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine, with an emphasis on biotechnology—the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor. I'm a podcast host. I work on a farm, but I'm really excited every week to be able to sit down and talk to an expert about some application of technology to improve the human condition maybe help agriculture or maybe aid in conservation and it's really exciting to see all of the amazing things that are happening if you would have asked me five years ago or six years ago when i started this uh, how are you ever going to be able to find a guest every week (laughs) <laughs> well, it turns out that the, the dance card is pretty full. The technology is accelerating at such a great pace that we're able to find experts uh, constantly who are doing really exciting things using biotechnology tools. So today we're going to talk to Dr. Stephen Quake. He's uh, Otterson professor in the School of Engineering and professor of bioengineering at Stanford University. Uh, in uh, Palo Alto, California. He's also the president of the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. So welcome to the podcast, Steve.
2: Thanks, Kevin. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you're here too. This is a really intriguing topic, and we'll talk about this as as we roll forward. But what exactly is the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub?
2: The Chan Zuckerberg Biohub is a nonprofit medical research organization that I helped start five years ago here in the Bay Area. It's led by myself and Joe DeRisi who's a professor at UCSF, and uh, we're trying to accelerate biomedical research, working very closely with Stanford, UCSF, and Berkeley um, to uh, develop new technologies and, and enable new discoveries in science that will ultimately uh, affect human health in a positive way.
1: Real good, and to today's topic we're going to talk about is is in a nutshell is liquid biopsies. But let's before we get into exactly what that is, we know that over the years science has made great strides in the detection of cancers and other diseases. But where are we now with respect to detection of cancers, and and what are what are some opportunities in detection science?
2: Sure, uh, for cancer in particular, um, I'd say dominated right now by uh, fairly mature technologies, which um, uh, uh, have sort of limited sensitivity um, and specificity. And so, you know, they're, they're not optimal. They're missing a lot of disease. And what we know about cancer is the earlier you detect it, um, the more likely you'll have a good outcome because when it can be treated surgically early, um, you have much higher survival. And so uh, kind of uh, the, the challenge for cancer detection is to detect it as early as possible. Um, and, and existing diagnostics are not great at that.
1: Yeah, so early detection seems to be the trick. So what exactly is a liquid biopsy?
2: So liquid biopsy is a term uh, that refers to a blood test that is giving you information about other organs or tissues in your body, not just in the blood. The blood becomes like a vehicle to bring you information about uh, what may be a tumor in your body, uh, what may be something relating to the health of a, of a fetus, and if you're pregnant. Um, what could be related to the health of, uh, of, of your transplanted heart, if you had a heart transplant. Um, and so it's 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 a it's a very broad term about uh, kind of blood tests that give you information about the health of solid tissues in your body.
1: Okay, so it's kind of, so in general, this is a way. Of, of interrogating, would you just take a blood sample, or, or is this some other kind of fluid that you use, or is it a combination of all of the above?
2: It's a blood sample, um, and you know what's driving a lot of the excitement right now is um, using that blood sample to measure what's called cell-free DNA and cell-free RNA. Um, and, and so, the basic science behind that is every uh, tissue in your body is contributing. DNA and RNA from the cells as they die or turn over, um, which then goes into your blood. Um, And so the ability to use genomic techniques to read out that self-read DNA and RNA has become an incredibly powerful approach to diagnostics. And, And that's mostly what people are referring to when they talk about liquid biopsy.
1: Okay. So this is really cool. So if you have, is this because a lot of the tumors that are, or let's say solid tumors anyway. Um, well, so is that what we're looking for here are solid tumors or are these liquid biopsies to detect blood cancers or both?
2: So blood cancers are pretty straightforward to detect by looking at the cells that are in the blood. So you have pretty straightforward access to them. Um, and, and so most of the liquid biopsy work is focused on, uh, on, uh solid tumors although some people who work with liquid tumors are using liquid biopsies to interrogate what's happening inside the marrow um, uh, which is obviously hard to get at um, with the the blood um, with conventional techniques
1: i see and does this work with solid tumors because uh, there's angiogenesis and you're getting some shedding of cells and cellular debris into the bloodstream from solid tumors and and do they work before there's angiogenic innervation of the tumor?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, definitely the tumor needs access to the blood supply. Um, and so I, I think most people would argue that, yes, you're not going to get the signal until there's been some degree of angiogenesis. Um, and, and, but I, I wouldn't say that's been completely rigorously worked out yet.
1: Okay, so that that's just kind of the thing that pops to mind right away. Angiogenesis, just for the casual listener, is the process of uh, vascularization. So blood blood intervention into like uh, vascular formation into a tumor to feed the tumor, which is something that's required for it to really grow rapidly. So catching it early might be something that would precede angiogenesis. So with that kind of idea as a background, how sensitive is this technology and what kind of disorders have been successfully detected?
2: Yeah. So let's just zoom back a little bit and just, you know, think about the the larger world of disease um, uh, beyond cancer, because the earliest and Uh, And most successful to date uses of liquid biopsies have been in pregnancy, actually. Um, And so, uh, the use of liquid biopsy to replace invasive techniques like amniocentesis has created a revolution over the last 10 years, it's been incredibly dramatic, and millions of women every year now getting a blood test um, instead of uh, an invasive biopsy in their pregnancy. Um, And that saves thousands of lives every year. Um, It's really been quite remarkable.
1: Yeah, So what are the um, advantages of this over the conventional detection methods? I know we mentioned that a little bit in the beginning, but, um, you know, in terms of cost and sensitivity, that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, it's safe. Um, So for example, amniocentesis has uh, a a fatality rate associated. Some some fraction of women lose their pregnancies um, as a result and the fetus dies. And that's not a problem you have with a blood test. So that's, Terrific, and then more generally, uh, invasive biopsies have have other levels of discomfort and risk, and uh, require really expert doctors to perform. Um, and so, in cases like uh, heart transplant and kidney transplant, and in cancer, um, uh, it's just much safer. And, uh, and and, and uh, pleasant for the patient to do the blood draw rather than to have uh, some big needle go in and, and, and grab a piece of your tissue.
1: So the basic idea then is looking for this um, free RNA or free DNA in the bloodstream. And what kind of test is being performed? Is this a PCR based thing where you're amplifying targeted sequences or is this just kind of a, a general genomics level, like interrogate everything that's there and see if there's some of the targets that we um, are commonly associating with with uh, expressed genes in tumors. You,
2: you see examples of all of that in the scientific literature. So people have been interrogating the cell-free DNA and RNA with all those methods. Um, uh, most of the clinical tests now um, use sequencing to read out the cell-free uh, DNA and RNA, and they'll sometimes do what's called shotgun sequencing, which is just sequence everything that's there. And sometimes they'll sequence only targeted molecules by using uh, a panel or a PCR application to pre-select a certain class of sequences.
1: Yeah, I guess that's really the good question then. So there are specific RNAs that are specific genes that are expressed in, uh, in tumors. And, and so what are some examples of what those might be, you know, just in general, just to give the audience an idea of things that you would be looking for?
2: Well, there's a very famous set of, of oncogenes, um, which will accumulate what are called driver mutations. Um, and uh, folks have created panels around those. So they know that uh, mutations in those sets of genes will, will affect, will, will, will come about in a, in a large fraction of cancers. And this sort of cancer genome databases are useful for that. So there's, you know, I'd say five, six dozen of those um, for a given cancer. Um, but it's important to note that uh, in cancer diagnostics, it's not just about finding mutations. And in fact, one of the most exciting advances in the literature of the last several years has been this realization that in fact, it, it, it looks like it's going to be more informative to look at the epigenetic state um, of the tumor rather than the mutations. Um, and so uh, epigenetics are, 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 are changes to the DNA, which can result in silencing the gene or turning the gene back on, but are chemical changes to DNA beyond just ACTG.
1: Well, that's kind of interesting. So how do you detect those modifications and what do they look like You know, on, on the DNA or RNA itself?
2: Yeah. So in the case of DNA, the most famous one, which is sometimes called the fifth base pair, is methylation. Um, so a methyl group is added, um, uh, so-called so uh, often the cytosines. And uh, that's how cells will turn off genes. They heavily methylate the DNA around the genes, and, and that prevents transcription of the gene. Um, and then when you want to turn it back on, it gets demethylated, um, and the methyls get um, taken away. Um, <clears throat> and so there's uh, been very popular in recent years to study methylation um, and look at genes, whether they're properly or improperly methylated, because those states change in tumors as cells de-differentiate. Um, and uh, the, the really um, exciting latest results have been um, to look at a chemical intermediate during the demethylation process called hydroxymethylation. Um, and that's uh, like the first chemical change that happens to a, a methylated base as it's becoming demethylated, and it captures really dynamic information about what the tumor is doing. And uh, from my perspective, that seems to be the most informative thing to measure because it really reflects the underlying biology of the tumor.
1: And for most people in the audience, they've, they've heard about PCR. We know that pretty well. That's, you know, on the tip of everyone's tongue with COVID and everything else happening. But how do you, what is the mechanism of detection, detecting methylation or this hemi or this, um, uh, other methylated state is uh, the hydroxymethylated state. Is, is there a specific assay that can target that kind of, uh, RNA or DNA or in this case, DNA, uh, in the bloodstream? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, once you purify the DNA from the blood, yes, there are chemical changes you can do that make it possible to sequence um, the methylated or hydroxymethylated parts of the DNA. Um, one of the ones that we've used in my lab very successfully, and in fact, we helped develop, um, is a way to, uh, uh, to chemically modify the hydroxymethyl so that you can add a biotin and then pull down that DNA uh, and then sequence specifically the fragments that have hydroxymethylated bases on them. And that's been really, really useful. That's a really cool trick.
1: Yeah. Biotin is just a a, a B vitamin that has a very strong affinity for something called streptavidin. So you can uh, have a streptavidin coated bead and essentially pull biotinylated molecules out of solutions just for folks who are curious about the backstory on that, but but really neat stuff. So we're talking with Dr. Stephen Quake. Uh, He's a co-president of the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub. Is that the same Zuckerberg <laughs> As uh, the Facebook so Zuckerberg, or is that uh... it is indeed? It is. It indeed. is okay. So, th- so there you go. There's your Facebook dollars going to please really support some good science. Uh, this is the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back with you in just a moment.
3: In the last month, we celebrated the release of three important biotechnology products for the developing world and rice and B.T. Brinjal in the Philippines, and virus-resistant cassava in Kenya. Technology to increase health, decrease insecticide use, and serve subsistence farmers is finally landing in the places it was intended to serve. This is a victory for the food insecure, the developing world farmers, And a victory for the scientists that helped create the enabling technologies. So pat yourself on the back, talking biotech aficionado. At least the double-jointed among you. Others get a friend or a local 'er ne'er-do-well to do it for you, as you deserve a little piece of the credit. Why you? Organizations like Greenpeace have spectacular coffers to defeat technology from reaching the developing world. They can fund a full-time staff to fight the science on the ground, as well as misinformation in social media. On the other side, it's just us, folks with full-time gigs. We simply want to see solutions land where they're needed. Getting innovation to application requires communication. And that's what we do every week here, talking at the Talking Biotech Podcast. So continue to share the stories as more countries take interest in modern biotech remedies. Your engagement with critics, the confused, the science deniers, and the weirdos. It's all necessary to speed proliferation of safe and effective technologies for those desperately in need. Your voice is one in a chorus, and it's a critical one. It is all of us standing up for the right thing to get the best technologies into the hands of those who need it. Keep sharing the stories that you learn here on the Talking Biotech Podcast.
1: And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Steve Quake. He's the co-president of the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub and attempting to revolutionize the way we detect cancers early. And it's really important because as we... Perish less from things like heart attacks and strokes and yeah. uh, and preventable disease through vaccination and other modalities. Things like cancer become increasingly prevalent, probably because of the fact that we're we got to die from something. And and this plus neurodegenerative disease appears to be the next frontier of the of the issues that will really confront many of us as we age. So uh, when we look at something like uh, these techniques that you're devising. Is it currently in use and for which type of cancers is it currently being tested on?
2: Yeah. So in cancer, we view the next year or two as kind of the real um, kind of transition point where you'll see a lot of these liquid biopsies come into, uh, into widespread use for early detection. At the moment, uh, in cancer, liquid biopsies are mostly used. For monitoring disease, I mean, people have already been diagnosed and you're monitoring their treatment. Those have been kind of the largest applications and by far the largest applications of liquid biopsy to date in the clinic have been in uh, prenatal care, transplant care, and infectious disease.
1: Okay. So, with that as a background, what are kind of the emerging, uh, are there specific uh, cancers that really are the exciting potential? Potential areas of application because if you detect them early enough, they have a better case of being resolved.
2: Yeah, I mean, there are some cancers for which there's no good early diagnostic at all. Um, and uh, one example of that is pancreatic cancer. Uh, the, the survival rates for that are very low because it's often detected quite late. Um, and uh, one of the companies that I helped found, Blue Star Genomics, recently got FDA breakthrough approval for their pancreatic cancer liquid biopsy test. Uh, And so I'm very excited about that and seeing that come into the clinic.
1: Yeah, that's a really good one because obviously, you know, you, you don't know that one until it's too late. I guess the other question is, do you think that this would be something where every year before you go in for your annual physical, you may go for a blood test ahead of time and just get the surveillance? You know, is that kind of where this is going to you know, just have your give your physician another tool to assess your, uh, your state?
2: Yes, precisely. I think this will be a test that you take after a certain age, Um, because your cancer risk goes up as you get older. But um, uh, after a certain age, you'll be tested regularly, whether it's every year, twice a year, I think yet to be worked out, but um, it'll be that kind of annual physical thing.
1: Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Are there different are there some markers? And I think we, you kind of already mentioned this, but some markers are some target genes to detect, which are indicative of multiple cancers. So where you wouldn't be looking say specifically for a type of pancreatic cancer, but say something that was just a general marker of, uh, of uh, malignancy or I shouldn't say malignancy of, of uh, transformation.
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's been one of kind of intense debate within the field. Um, and <laughs> interestingly enough, uh, I think the, 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 you know, the point of view most people are taking, most physicians are taking, that it is not useful to have uh, a general mark of malignancy because then what do you do with it? Oh, you may have a tumor somewhere, but now we've got to go chase it down and find it. And so there's a lot of effort at the moment in developing tests that will tell you not only do you have a malignancy, but which tissue is it in? Um, and, and, and that's viewed as, as a very important piece of making all this practically useful um, uh, for doctors and treating people's health
1: you know, it just occurred to me in talking to you about this, is that this isn't something that's completely foreign. We see commercials on TV all the time for ColoGuard, which is like a colorectal cancer uh, detection, which I guess isn't a liquid biopsy, but it's a, (laughs) I guess a semi-solid biopsy. But is is
2: it kind of the same thing? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, the ColoGuard, which was started, offered by Exact Bioscience, this was Uh, That company was founded by a good friend of mine, Stan Lapidus, who was a real pioneer in this area, and they're using stool, Um, so the idea of looking for colon cancer, you're picking up a lot of DNA from the poop that's going through your colon, um, and and they developed uh, a test based on that that has been uh, remarkably successful. No,
1: oh, that's really that's really a, a perfect analogy. I wish I would have thought about that in the beginning because that would have given us a lot more context for the for the discussion. But where where do you think this is going next? Like when when do you think people will be getting a routine a screening from a liquid biopsy from a blood sample prior to visiting physicians?
2: Yeah, I, I it, you know the first real products are going to come on the market next year, I think, and you know there's going to be. Uh, I think very large studies with them, but uh, you, you'll, you'll get the first inkling of how that's all going to feel um, in 2022, I think.
1: That's really great. And, and how has research and collaboration changed since the onset of the COVID 19 pandemic?
2: Well, that's, that's another good question. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. We, we've all sort of found uh, that we can do research. Uh, without as much travel as we used to do um, <laughs> uh, a lot of conferences have become virtual and online and you know a lot of scientific communication has, has been happening that way um, I think you've seen a really accelerated use of preprints um, and so people have have really uh, become much more adopt much more enthusiastic about adopting the use of preprints so you're not waiting for your paper to come out in the journal but you're sharing it ahead of time with people uh, to try to accelerate their research that's something we've Really tried to emphasize since the beginning of of the Biohub and have have, have have made a big commitment to, and it's just like been a tidal wave with the pandemic, um, um, all to the mostly to the better. I mean, you see, there's a little <laughs> bit of negative to it in the sense that the press will jump on these things and uh, and and sometimes get stuff all aflutter. Um, But um, within the scientific community, it's been quite positive.
1: Yeah, it's been a really good thing. I I love when I put mine up there just because it makes me, it forces me to go through my papers one more time because I know it's going to be going through review in a much broader way before it goes through review. And the reviewers are awesome, but the reviewers. preprint reviewers are, 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 are hostile. <laughs> they let you use a semicolon, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty crazy.
2: Um, Some of it is more heat than light for sure. But uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, well, I, the, the real value of preprints and that we believe at the Biohub, and I, I think this is true, is for other experts in the field um, to understand, you know, what the latest advances are by their colleagues. And the further away you get from your area of expertise, the less useful the preprints are because You you have less, I think, uh, of a a foundation to to evaluate them based on, and and it's harder to tell, Um, make an expert judgment.
1: And that's a very true statement I, I've, I've tried to immerse myself in the COVID-19 literature to, to be a little more conversant in social media and help allay some of the fears about vaccination and other mitigation strategies and the preprints just can poison the dialogue because a lot gets published in preprint space that never makes it to, uh, to a quality journal and so that's you know, the, the, the um, blessings and the curses I guess Exactly. Well, Dr. Steve Quake, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate learning about this particular topic. It's really exciting, and best wishes in the future.
2: Thanks very much. It was great to chat, Kevin.
1: And for everyone listening, thank you for listening to another week of the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write a review on iTunes, you know the drill. If you want to show us a little love on Patreon, that's great too. Every penny is invested in promoting the podcast, and that's really important to grow the audience. There's a lot of important podcasts out there, a lot of excellent media, and we're trying to keep our space inside that really busy universe. So, thank you very much for all of your kind words, your and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for, we really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. It's just me. Thank you very much for joining me again and we'll talk to you again next week.
3: The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us if it's a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking BioTech Podcast.